0: you turn with me to a passage on which today's uh, gospel lesson is based, it's printed in your bulletins. I'll be reading from uh, Zechariah chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 through 5. Now I'm willing to bet that many of you have not read from the book of Zechariah, uh, and so I'm sure you're thrilled uh, to hear from this uh, passage today, um, but it, I, I assure you it's, a, it's an important passage and, and, a, and an amazing passage. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And this is God's word. For the past month, we've been looking at... um, uh, Scenes or narratives around the temple, and uh, it seems abstract, seems kind of out there. Um, and this passage, no different in some ways, because the early part of Zechariah is filled with visions. Zechariah was written at about the same time the book of Haggai was written, which we looked at last week, uh, when the people were being asked to rebuild the temple. Now, we're not sure why, but in this passage, there's, there's a, at least in the vision, there's a trial. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So we have all the the members of the trial, the members of the court, we have have an accuser, we have a prosecutor, we have the high priest who is a defendant, and we have the angel of the Lord as our advocate. There are three points today. We're going to look at the prosecutor, a flawed advocate, and our ultimate advocate. God is the judge, and so we have a trial, we have a prosecutor, a flawed advocate, and our ultimate advocate. First, we're going to look at the prosecutor, Satan. Now, we live in modern times, and so words like Satan, we don't use that a whole lot. We don't, words like the devil, they seem primitive, like like an older era of church. But yes, Satan exists, the devil exists, the devil is real, more than just an ideal, more than just a concept, and and his job, day and night, is to accuse. His job is to uh, really make you dwell on your guilt. Some of you say, well, isn't that, what a, isn't that what a conscience is? Yes and no. On one hand, a conscience can bring the kind of guilt that can lead you to repentance, that can lead you to faith. You know you say, "This is me, I've done this, I've done that. I'm going to run to the Father who forgives me on the basis of Jesus' person, on the basis of Jesus' work, but on the other hand, a conscience, our consciences are, are not perfect. Our consciences are distorted by sin. Our consciences are broken by sin. And so as a result, our consciences, they can be terribly misleading, even self-justifying. Think about this. Why is it? Why do, you, why do some sins, why do certain types of guilt weigh on you so heavily? Why do some sins press on you so heavily? In verse 1, and it's not just guilt. It's not just sin. It's failures. It's certain parts of your past that are broken. Why do they weigh on you so heavily? In verse 1, the text says, Satan, he's at the judge's right hand accusing the high priest Now, the high priest represents the people of God. In other words, the high priest, that's you. The high priest represents the people of God. So what he represents is us. That's us. And Satan is standing there, and what's he doing? He's accusing. He's prosecuting. In fact, the word Satan, the very word, means accuser, prosecutor. It's why memories of your past, memories of your guilt, memories of shame, shameful things... That's why these things, your failures, they're not just memories. It's almost like there's a video recording in your head, in your heart, and it replays over and over and over. Years after the fact, you see this, and it's like it happened yesterday. Why is it like that? It's like there's this voice telling you, this is you. Even now, this is you. And the reason why is because there is a voice. And that voice is constantly prosecuting you. That voice is constantly accusing you. That voice, and there are many ways that this plays out. One, I'm going to give you a few. One, the voice will say, look at you. You can't do this. You can't live this life. You're not going to be able to succeed. Even now, you can't do this. You can't live the Christian life. Number two, God won't hear you. You don't deserve to be heard. God's not going to listen to you. Or when you fail, number three, see, you're see what happened here you failed again you failed again you can't be one of god's children you fail all the time well here's a tough one when you suffer right when you suffer see why would god care about you you deserve to suffer look at your failures look at your life if you're a teacher if you're a pastor um, you see this a lot. You hear, you are hopeless. You, how is God going to use you? Why would God use you? You're a failure. Look at your moral character. Look at your lifestyle. Look at your life. Look at your abilities. You don't have the abilities. At my age, you know, Sometimes I start on the first floor, I run up to my second floor, and I forget why I went there. You know, it happens to me all the time. And Sometimes I'm on you know, the second floor and I run downstairs. And I'm like, wait, why am I down here? Why did I come? I know there was a reason why. Uh, in any given moment, it happens. But yet, I can remember very vividly accusations and indictments that have been made about me like four years ago, five years ago. I can remember them so vividly. I can remember the looks on people's faces, the voice and the tone, the smell in the room. I can remember that. You can hear it. You can you, you, that sense of shame or embarrassment, the humiliation. It's all there. Why is that? It's because it's more than your conscience working. That's more than your conscience. It's more than just shame or guilt. The text says that Satan is standing and pointing. And he's saying, you are a burning stick. You deserve to be in the fire. You are a burning stick. You deserve to burn up. You deserve to be consumed. That's what he's saying. In other words, you deserve to die. You are filthy. You are a failure. You are useless. And you're never going to change. And you're never going to make it. And you don't deserve God's love. And in a sense, he's right. Verse 3, here's Joshua. He's the high priest. The high priest represents God's people. And he's clothed in filth. He's clothed in filthy garments. We're going to get to that. But the high priest is supposed to represent the people of God. He's supposed to be clean. And Satan is saying, look, this representative of your people, he is a failure. He is filthy. He is useless. He doesn't deserve your love. He can't earn it because he has failed. The one thing he's supposed to do is be clean, to be pure on this day, and yet he has failed. And what does the Lord say? He rebukes Satan. He rebukes Satan, and he says, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Yes, he's a burning stick. Yes, he's on fire. Yes, he may deserve to be there, but has he not been snatched from the fire, he says. In other words, I've rescued him. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. Yes, he failed. Yes, he's filthy. But I chose him, and I saved him. Now think, you ever play with a burning stick or a skewer in the fire? I don't know a single male, I don't know a single guy. You know? All guys are, are pyromaniacs up until like the age of like 30. <laughs> you know? They love playing with fire, right? Um, and, and I don't know, if you've ever played with a stick or a skewer in the fire, when you pull it out, what happens? The fire goes away, you just have this glowing orange. The fire goes away, but the stick is never the same. It's charred, it's, it's black. You know, it's crumbled, right? Uh, When God redeems us, it means He pulled us out of the fire. The fire is gone. No more condemnation. But there's that char, there's a smudge, there's the dirt right now. Right now, if you're a Christian, your sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Christ's righteousness, it's not just we've been forgiven. In fact, you see this in the text. It's not just that he says, I've taken away your sin. I've taken away a sin, right? He says, I have also made you clean. I've I've given, I've placed my righteousness on you. And so there's no more condemnation. Christ's righteousness is in you, but You may be saved from the penalty of sin. You may be saved from the power of sin. Sin no longer has that that oppressive hold on you. You can actually be free from sin. No longer has that grip, that control over you. You're no longer a slave, and yet you're still reeling from the pollution of sin. You're still reeling. You burned. You feel that burn. There's still the presence of sin in your life. You may have been hurt. You may be hurt. You may have lost the trust of people in your life. That's part of the burn. Maybe there's material loss or marital loss even. There's the burn. But God says, I've pulled you from the fire, and one day even the presence of sin will be gone forever. More than a decade ago, the U.S. entered a war, probably, like, what, 15 years ago now? The U.S. entered into a war to topple a dictator. And this is not a political statement at all. You know, it's just facts, right? I mean, the dictator... Uh, he, he was removed, the tyrant was moved, he fled, he was found, he was charged, he was executed. And yet, they're still fighting to this day. There's still havoc to this day in that country. Buildings are crumbling. There's fighting every day, right? And yet, I had a friend in the Marines who was in the thick of the fight during that period. And one thing he told me, he called me while he was out there, and he told me, you know, I was in a taxi cab... And uh, what the, the taxi cab driver? I said, "Wow, you know, look at all the—I mean, the city is just torn apart." But the taxi cab stopped and told him, "Yes, but the dictator is gone. We are free. You see. On one hand, the tyrant is lost. Evil is dead." You have been snatched from the fire if you're a Christian. But on the other hand, the opposition battles on. The pollution of sin, the presence of sin, constantly in your life. That's us. And what the prosecutor does is this he uses that pollution, he uses the sin, he uses the baggage, he uses the damage. He uses the trauma, something that God used in many ways for good to bring you closer to him to say, see, this is why he is not a Christian. This is why you are not a Christian, you see. You don't deserve God's love. God would never accept you like this. And I know after seven years, today is Metro's birthday, after seven years, many people here think that because they have overwhelming guilt and shame, because of those memories... They believe that God will not love them or God will not find them lovable or acceptable. And in a sense, we haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. We are not acceptable by ourselves. It's only by God's sheer grace that we are who we are, where we are. You understand? Satan, the prosecutor, will try to ruin any progress By showing you, see, you still struggle with sin. The same sins. You are not in Jesus. You are not a Christian. That's what a prosecutor does. He indicts you. He charges you. He prosecutes and accuses you. Now, the second point is we have the flawed advocate here in Joshua. Joshua is the high priest. And this is the vision of the temple. The temple is not quite finished. And Zechariah was a prophet concerned about the rebuilding of the temple Um, You know, we learn that the temple is the religious center for God's people. And so the high priest in the temple represents the people. That's us. If the high priest is clean, we are clean. If the high priest obeys all the rules, it's as as if we obeyed all the rules. If the high priest performs all the rituals perfectly, it's as if we obeyed all the rituals perfectly. The high priest is essentially the mirror image of, of God's people representing God. And the temple had three parts. There was an outer court. There were inner courts. And then there was a, a, what they call the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is the a, is a, is a innermost sanctuary. It was covered in a thick veil, thick curtains, not like the curtains that you drape over in your room. These are thick, thick curtains. And inside the Holy of Holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was the mercy seat. That's where the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God, the royal presence of God dwelt. It was a dangerous place. In Leviticus 16, you were told that incense and smoke were used to cover the mercy seat so that a high priest would not die while he is in the presence of, of the Shekinah glory of God. Only one person on one day, that's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would be able to enter into the Holy Holies. That was the high priest. And Zechariah in this passage, the context is that he's experiencing this vision from inside the Holy of Holies on that day where he saw Joshua, the high priest. And the high priest would perform specific rituals, specific uh, rituals as part of his, uh, this, this preparation and the execution of, of the Day of Atonement. One week prior to the Day of Atonement, he was taken into seclusion. He was away from his home. He would be alone. Why? so that he wouldn't become unclean. He wouldn't become unclean. Clean food would be brought to him. He'd wash his body. He'd prepare his heart. And then the night before the Day of Atonement, he wouldn't sleep. He stayed up all night. He would pray. He would read the Bible. He would purify his heart. And then on that day, here's what he would do. He would bathe from head to toe, and then he would be dressed in pure, unstained white linen, And then he would enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer an animal sacrifice for his sins. And then he would come out, and then he would bathe again, head to toe, he would bathe again. And then he'd be reclothed in white linen, then he would enter in again, and this time he would sacrifice for the priests. Then he would come out, and a third time he would bathe again, head to toe clothed in white linen, and turn again the Holy of Holies, this time for the sins of the people. Right? So a lot of, of, of uh, order there, and it was all done in public view. The temple was literally crowded on the day, and people would watch through a thin screen. They would literally watch him through a thin screen as he bathed. They would watch him bathe. They would watch him get dressed. They would watch him go in to the Holy of Holies, and they would watch him come out of the Holy of Holies. And while he's doing, performing these rituals, they will be cheering him. They're cheering him on. He represents the people of God. On one day, he is a representative of the people of God, and he will go in clean, perform the rituals perfectly, right, to represent the people, and the sins of the people will be forgiven. And so they, they would cheer him on. Each time he comes out of the Holy they would cheer him on. They would watch his every move to make sure that he was following all the rules with utmost purity. In this passage, Zechariah now sees Joshua in the Holy of Holies, but he's in filthy clothes. That's the image. This is an unclean high priest. This is a filthy, unacceptable high priest. If the high priest is unclean, the people of God are unclean. If the high priest are unacceptable, the people of God are unacceptable. You see? If the high priest is filthy, the people of God are filthy. The actual word for that is righteousness. Righteousness in a way means approval. Unacceptable. The high priest at his best is in the Holy of Holies. And here he is filthy. He is dirty. It means that we're dirty. We are filthy. And this is disastrous to God's people. In other words, in spite of all the efforts to be acceptable, it's why we're constantly working for approval, why we're constantly anxious, why we get depressed. Deep inside, we know, we have this desire, this need to be declared righteous, for somebody outside of us to say, yes, you are righteous, you are beautiful. We have this strong desire to be received and accepted, to be acceptable. But we know that deep inside, something's amiss, something's wrong were not acceptable. There's this deep-rooted insecurity that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When, and we can go into this, but Adam and Eve, you know, when they, when they chose to rebel against God and they saw themselves to be naked and it was shame. There's this deep insecurity and the instant they recognize that, what do they do? They try to cover themselves up with fig leaves and they hid from God. It's this deep-rooted insecurity that's caused by sin. And it's not just a social thing. It's not a romantic thing. It's not a work-related thing. This is, we use all those things to cover over that insecurity to say, yes, this is what makes me acceptable. This is what makes me righteous. If I can just be in with this group of people, then I am acceptable. If I can just have this in my life, then I'm acceptable. If I can get this promotion and be approved by this level of people, then I'm acceptable. If I can minister in this category, in this place, then I'm acceptable. If I can live in that neighborhood, send my kids to that school, then I'm acceptable. If I can get into this company or this school, then I'm acceptable. If I can have this type of career path, we can go on and on. Guys, we do this even at the smallest things. If I could just beat him at this game, then I'm acceptable. If I can, sometimes it's a, we have hot dog eating contests in this country, right? We have hot dog eating contests, It's all pursuing a righteousness and acceptance that is greater than somebody else. It's why we need to look better than others, dress better than others. We can make a competition of anything. We are constantly competing for God's love and God's acceptance. And it's disastrous. We're advocating for ourselves, and we're saying, see, this is my defense i am clean i am okay i am acceptable one it's disastrous because you're working to cover over your flaws but that's what makes you so defensive because people can see your flaws you're working to cover over your flaws your insecurity your your failures but that's what makes you angry when people discover these things when people challenge you on these things you're anxious because you're placing so much weight on your success or your looks or your relationships or your promotions, and those things were never meant to sustain that kind of weight, to handle that kind of weight. The second thing is it has no effect. Even when you get there, even when you get there, you're not satisfied. If anything, it increases the hunger and the thirst, you see? When I quote this movie often, in uh, 1984, there's a movie, Chariots of Fire, one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's a true story about uh, a Jewish sprinter really going up against uh, a Christian sprinter you know, in the Olympics. You know, 100 man, it's a true story. And without going into the details, um, you have Eric Liddell, who is, who is a Christian, and he says, I run, and when I run, I feel God's pleasure. It's an amazing line in the movie. But Harold Abrams, he's got the weight of his country he's got the weight of, really, the weight of the world on his shoulders, right? Because he's fighting, he's battling anti-Semitism. He says, if I don't win this, right, those people out there will always view me as a certain type of person. And he's a, he's a great runner. And there's this one scene where he's, he's getting ready to race, and his friend uh, comes up to him. And uh, he tells his friend, you know, I used to be afraid. I used to be afraid of losing, Now, I'm almost afraid of winning. Because what's next after that? What happens, you see? We're still covered in filth. And that's Joshua. But that's us. No matter what you do, you cannot overrule the brokenness and the mess and the sin. And you cannot clean yourself. So, we need something more than a flawed advocate. That's a flawed advocate. But this passage reveals an ultimate advocate. And that's our last point. You see, Zechariah, he's about to despair. But in verse 1, you see the angel of the Lord. And in verse 2, it's the Lord. They're the same person. Verse 1, angel of the Lord, and he goes into kind of shortcut, verse 2, it's the Lord. They're the same person. On one hand, the angel of the Lord is not just an angel. He calls himself the Lord, bears his name, the Lord. The Lord. It's the name that God, it's the name Yahweh, the name that God told his people, the people he treasures. Only they would have a special name to refer to God. Everybody else used words like Adonai or Elohim, but God's special chosen people will refer to him as Yahweh, the Lord. And in the angel, he's more than an angel. In the Old Testament, whenever you see the angel of the Lord, they're referring to the pre-incarnate Jesus, the one who bears God's name, the Lord. And so here's Satan, he's prosecuting, and he's accusing. He's the deceiver, so he's lying and cheating and deceiving and twisting to accuse. In other words, he's making his case, and it's a pretty good case. He's making a case, and what does he say? What, what, does, uh, what does the advocate say? The accuser says, this person, this person deserves to die, essentially, right? But then you have this advocate, and what's his case? Verse 4, the angel said to those standing before form. In other, in other words, he's making his case. Verse 4, he says, take off his filthy clothes. Verse 5, I have taken away your sin. I will clothe you with rich garments. I'm going to change the emphasis a little bit, right? He says, I have taken away your sin. I have taken away your sin. I will clothe you with rich garments. Verse 6, so I said, put a clean turban on him. So they put a clean turban on him and clothed him. The angel of the Lord stands before the prosecution stands before the judge, and he says, let this man go. He's clean. He's innocent. I've made him clean. I've made him innocent. He's advocating for the high priest. He says, take off his filthy clothes. I have taken away your sin, and I will clothe you in rich garments. He's saying, not only are you forgiven of your sins, but you're also made righteous. You were also made clean. I'm dressing you. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. What's happening here is Joshua, he's the high priest, he's broken, he's messy, he's unacceptable. That's us, that's you, right? The prosecution makes a solid case. But the high priest had the angel of the Lord as his advocate. And essentially what Jesus Christ is saying is this. He's saying, yes, Joshua represents the people as the high priest, but he's not the real high priest i am the real high priest i represent the people of god i will perform the work of the high priest once and for all as the ultimate advocate for my people so if i lose the case god's people lose but if i win the case god's people win if i obey perfectly it's as if god's people obey perfectly If I perform the ultimate ritual perfectly, then it's as if God's people perform the ultimate ritual. If I provide the ultimate sacrifice perfectly, then it's as if God's people have been forgiven of their sins. You see, that's what's going on here. And I used to think this. I used to think that when Jesus would plead his case to the father, to the judge, that what he's really saying is, Father, you are a loving God and you are a merciful God. He's sorry. He's he's praying. Look at him. He's praying to you. He's sorry. Let's give him another chance. Please, will you give him another chance? One more chance. Yes, he's a sinner, but you are a forgiving God. You are a merciful God. Please forgive him. Now, God is a merciful God, and God is a loving God, but that's not a solid case. In fact, there's no lawyer in America that would ever come before a judge that would ever plead a case like that. There's no just judge in the world that, ever, that would ever hear a case like that. Friends, the fact that God is just is why we have hope in our world, in our lives. We need to have a God who is just. Because God is just, evil will lose in the end. If God is not just, if he even lets one sin go unpunished, evil wins. You see? God has to be just. Because he's just, every sin has been accounted for. This is serious for us. Why? If you've ever been betrayed in your life, if you've ever been damaged by somebody in your life, if you've ever been lied to in a way that really hurt you, if you've ever been hurt by somebody in your life, God is our judge. He will not let a single sin go unpunished. So Jesus is not just pleading to set us free because God is just merciful or just loving. Of course he is, and of course he is. But if he was just doing it out of, you know, hey, you know what? You're right. You messed up. I'm going to let you go. That goes against his injustice. That's injustice. That, would make, that goes against his justice. Jesus Christ is not just pleading to set us free because God is loving or because God is merciful. He is equally just. And so Jesus says, I have taken away your sin because I represent the people. I will pay the price. I paid the penalty on the cross. I performed the real work of the high priest. The high priest rituals merely point to the work that I will do on the cross. One week prior to the cross, Jesus prepares. He enters into Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. The night before Jesus is crucified, Jesus is alone. He doesn't sleep. He stays up all night. The people are there with him. He tells them, will you pray? Pray for me. But instead of, che- instead of uh, cheering uh, on Jesus while they're watching, instead of praying for Jesus, they fall asleep on him. So they fail him, and he's betrayed, and they abandon him. So Jesus is alone the night before, and he's praying. He's praying all night. Instead of being clothed in rich garments, he's stripped naked. Instead of cheering him on, the crowd around him jeered him on. Instead of putting a clean turban on his head, they put a crown of thorns on his head. And on the cross... Jesus is before God, but instead of standing before God's presence and and being declared innocent, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, now I am clothed in filth, the sins of all my people. And so now I am truly, ultimately unacceptable and forsaken. To be separated from God like that, to be forsaken by God is to be cursed Jesus Christ was cursed. He suffered the ultimate curse, the ultimate condemnation, the ultimate consumption. He was consumed for our sins. When the angel of the Lord makes his case, he goes before the judge, and he says, Father, I'm not necessarily asking you to forgive them because they promise to do better, because they try harder, or because they're going to earn their worth and acceptance, because they can't. They are failures. They are sinful. They are messy. They are filthy. They are broken in sin. You are a just God, and these people owe a sin debt to you. But I paid that penalty in full. I am their high priest. And if I paid the price, they paid the price. If I paid the penalty, they paid the penalty. I have taken on their filth. So I'm not just pleading my case on the basis of your mercy. I'm not just pleading my case based on your love, although, yes, you are merciful, and, yes, he is loving. I'm pleading this case based on your justice because you will never make someone pay twice for the same sin. Your justice. All sin has been accounted for. The books are even. I've taken away their sin, and I've clothed them with rich garments. On the cross, instead of being as pure as the high priest could be, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We would be acceptable to God. That's Second Corinthians chapter 5. The cross became our mercy seat because Jesus' blood was spilt all over the cross. Jesus paid the price. What are you clothing yourselves in today? Because if it's anything other than the righteousness of Christ, you're going to be working. You're going to be toiling. You're going to be laboring. It's the, it's, there's no rest for you. You will be working. You're going to be proving yourself. Look, either Jesus is going to be your high priest, either Jesus is going to be your advocate, or you are going to be your own advocate. And you are a poor advocate. We're poor advocates for ourselves. But Jesus Christ is the perfect advocate. If you advocate yourself for yourself, you're never going to know where you really stand with God. There will always be that insecurity, that sense of shame and guilt that you're going to battle. You're constantly going to be you're going to you're going to run back to that. And then you're going to have to work harder to overcome that. If you're constantly going to advocate for yourself, That guilt, that shame, the prosecution is going to continue to come back. It is overpowering. And so you're going to work and strive and labor. That's what your service in the church is going to look like. That's what your relationships with other people are going to look like. That's what you at work is going to look like. But a Christian says, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am filthy. Satan may accuse me with these things, but I have actually more things Satan could say. I'll tell you a very quick story. There was this uh, pastor uh, that I heard of uh, in a church, uh, in a local church. The congregation had risen up against him and uh, pretty much tried to get him ousted, you know, and uh, so he sat in some sort of like tribunal of a, of a meeting or something, and everyone's throwing accusations at him. And he just sat there. And one by one, people got up and said, you know, you're like this, and you're like this, and you're this kind of, fail, and this kind of failure, and you're this kind of a failure, and you're this kind of a failure, and you were this, and you were that. And this pastor, they, you know, he stayed quiet. And he said, do you have anything to say? And so he kind of looked his head up and he said, thank God that's all you know. But though the accuser war of ills that I had done, I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah finds them, findeth none. What does Jesus say in verse 4? Does Jesus say, I've taken away your sin, so you owe me? Or you better work to earn me taking away your sin, then I'll, then I'll go in there for you and I'll do the work? No, that's not what he says. He says, behold Behold. You know what behold means? It's an old word. We don't use those words anymore, right? Look, gaze. It doesn't take any work to look. Something's beautiful, it doesn't take any work to look at it. Gaze on the beauty of the ultimate high priest. Gaze on God's love for you. Gaze on his mercy. Gaze on his beautiful justice gaze on the beauty of Christ the justice of Christ the faithfulness of Christ the promises of Christ the grace of Christ he is the perfect advocate who takes away your sin and you are no longer than a prisoner to sin what can a prisoner do a prisoner has no choice he's shackled all he can do is behold just watch as people sit around him and talk about him he's got no rights he just kind of sits there right and watch the advocate at work if you got a good advocate you're going to win the case. We have the perfect advocate in Christ. The high priest, the ultimate high priest in Jesus has won, so you won. Jesus died, so you died. And he did this for you. Behold that he did this for you. Now, he's not saying don't obey the law. You are held accountable to the law. He's not saying abandon your disciplines. He's not saying abandon your career or your family or success or studies. Those things are important, but you cannot use those things to advocate for you. So stop putting so much weight, cosmic weight. It's like taking a a Mack truck, a 20-ton Mack truck. Is there such a thing as a 20-ton Mack truck? 20-ton Mack truck, a plane, I don't know, over a bridge. It's not going to hold up the weight. It's going to collapse. Only the gospel can hold that weight, the cosmic pressure and weight of righteousness that you need. That's the only validation you need. Only the gospel can cure you. Only the gospel can heal you. Only the gospel can rid you of any sense of inc- inconsequence or insecurity or shame or guilt or vanity or envy or jealousy or covetousness.: Behold the beauty of Christ. He's our ultimate advocate, friends. He's our ultimate end. Just behold. Let's gaze on Christ as we respond in song today. Let's pray.